Hello and welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. I'm your host, Luke Frog. Today I share with you an interview I did with philosopher Evan Fales, an expert on the reformed epistemology of Christian philosophers like Alvin Plantiga and William Alston, who argue that Christians shouldn't need any arguments or evidence to believe in God. Plantinga himself never explicitly argues that the Christian story, as he calls it, is true. He just argues that if it's true, then Christians have warranted beliefs. So, yeah. Stick around as we dive into the weird, weird world of Reformed epistemology. Dr. Evan Sales is a philosophy professor at the University of Iowa. He received his Ph.D. in philosophy from Temple University in 1974, and since then has published numerous articles and books, including Scientific Explanations of Mystical Experience and Critical Discussion of Alvin Plantiga's Warranted Christian Beliefs. Evan, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much. Happy to be here. Evan, I'd like to start with your own story. Were you always an atheist? I suppose the answer to that is pretty nearly yes. Uh, I was the child of um, Jewish refugees who converted to Quakerism shortly before I was born and who were seriously anti-doctrinal in their views and who raised uh, me and my sister really telling us that we should sort those matters out for ourselves. And so I was free to go to whatever Sunday school or church I wanted. And I would say that, again, thinking seriously about religious matters as a teenager um, really was not persuaded uh, that there was a God until uh, I was in my sophomore year in college and I read Aquinas' Five Proofs for the Existence of God. And then I was uh, persuaded for about the two weeks that it took me to think hard about those arguments and to see that maybe they weren't quite as conclusive as I had initially thought. Uh, so you might say that for a couple of weeks I was convinced uh, that theism was true uh, and then went back to my old agnostic or atheist ways. <laughs> that sounds a bit like Bertrand Russell, who was very briefly convinced by Anselm's ontological arguments and then looked at it a little more closely and it kind of fell apart for him. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about the philosophy of religion. Uh, many people are familiar with traditional Christian apologetics, which tries to argue that we can show that God exists because we have so much reason and evidence to believe. So, whether through the design of the universe or some kind of philosophical argument or whatever. But in the past 50 years or so, we've seen a new development. Some theologians have been arguing for a reformed epistemology, they call it, which says that it's okay to believe God exists even without uh, evidence. But why did reformed epistemology develop, and how has it changed the game? I think it was, uh, in fact, uh, foreseeable. Actually, I foresaw it that uh, with the uh, demise of a, uh, a general philosophical approach which had rather dominated Anglican-American analytic philosophy for roughly 50 years called logical positivism, with the demise of that approach which held, uh, at least in its more extreme forms, that uh, religious discourse was literally meaningless, there was really an opportunity for religious thinking to become academically respectable once again. And so uh, roughly around 1970, a number of Christian philosophers began to 
develop explicit views uh, and publish explicit views about uh, the nature of God, the nature of religious knowledge, and so on. Now, one of the things that happened was this uh, emergence of what has come to be known as Reformed Epistemology. Alvin Planning, of course, was uh, one of the people especially responsible for that. Uh, it's a view which has its roots in the kind of Calvinist theology out of which Planninga draws his own religious uh, convictions. And uh, I would say that Planninga has been especially ingenious at taking views that had their original home within uh, the naturalist philosophical community, the, the community of philosophers who are not theists, and showing how they can be turned to uh, theistic ends. And so, in particular, there was a view that had emerged in epistemology, non-religious epistemology, called reliabilism, which held that you can acquire knowledge when you acquire beliefs that are generated by mechanisms, belief-generating mechanisms, cognitive mechanisms that are reliable in the sense that they generally result in true beliefs, even if those cognitive mechanisms are not ones that involve your being able to provide evidence or explicit justification for your beliefs. So, uh, I mean, the, let me just say that uh, the natural home for this kind of reasoning was uh, in the effort to try to justify our ordinary perceptual beliefs about the material world around us. It's very hard to avoid uh, skeptical objections when you try to justify your belief that, you know, there's that you're sitting in a chair or that there's a desk in front of you now uh, without the arguments becoming circular or question-begging in some way. And reliabilism was a way to try to avoid those skeptical difficulties. Uh, the point was that as long as my, you know, my sensory faculties, my perceptual mechanisms and so on are functioning reliably, my perceptual beliefs count as knowledge even though I can't give a non-circular justification in terms of evidence. Now, what Planninga did was to see that a similar approach could be taken with respect to uh, Christian beliefs that have long been known to be uh, difficult to justify in terms of you know, usual appeal to evidence. Planninga has developed his own version of what I think could be generically called a reliableist theory of knowledge, and he has then tried to show how, in terms of that theory of knowledge, we can hold that Christian doctrinal beliefs are known by Christians, even in the absence of some sort of explicit justification that appeals to evidence. Yeah, so let's talk about Alvin Plantinga's argument for basic belief for Christians. How does that work? Well, all right. So, in in general, uh, <clears throat> Planninga has the view that uh, what is crucial to uh, having uh, knowledge is that one has beliefs that have a sufficient degree of something that he calls warrant. Now, warrant for him is a little bit different from justification 
um, it's a broader notion than justification. Uh, justification is a matter of being able to give an argument for a belief by appealing to uh, other beliefs that you have as premises. But warrant, while it includes that, uh, also includes beliefs that you can have not on the basis of some sort of argument, but just as, as it were, uh, foundational, or ones that uh, you believe uh, in a proper kind of way, even though you don't have any justification for them. And of course, everybody has to allow that there's some place where we begin with beliefs that are not grounded on other beliefs. But the particular view that Plantinga has about warrant is roughly this. A belief is, is warranted so long as it is a belief that... <clears throat> you acquire as a result of uh, a properly functioning, as he calls it, a properly functioning cognitive mechanism that is um, uh, well-designed to aim at the truth and which is operating in an environment uh, which is uh, appropriate for its design. Um, and uh, provided that that belief is accompanied by a, uh, a strong sort of feeling of confidence or certainty that the belief is true. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but the general idea is that we are cognitive, we have cognitive systems, systems for apprehending the world, um, which are, uh, which exhibit a certain design. And they've been designed uh, so as to allow us to acquire mostly true beliefs, as long as those cognitive systems are functioning properly, that is, as long as we're not crazy or blind or uh, otherwise impaired, and so long as we're functioning in the right kind of environment. If you're in a, uh, you know, one of these houses of mirrors uh, where there are devices that are designed to trick your visual uh judgments, you're not in an environment in which your eyes can function in the way they were intended to function. But as long as you're in a normal environment, and as long as you're functioning properly, your your perceptual beliefs will have warrant. Okay? And now, a similar sort of um, uh, idea can be applied to uh, religious beliefs of uh, certain kinds. That is to say, uh, maybe some of them uh, derive by way of inference from other religious beliefs that you have or other beliefs you have in general. <clears throat> but some of them may be beliefs that you just find yourself having. Uh, perhaps they are beliefs that are, in effect, triggered by your reading scripture or by... Um, you're attending a church service or listening to music or by any number of other things, uh, you find yourself having these beliefs. For instance, the belief that um, that Jesus is my personal Savior. And as long as those beliefs were somehow generated in you by a cognitive mechanism uh, which was designed to aim at the truth and which is functioning properly, etc., then those beliefs will have warrant. 
even though it's not as if you can give some sort of, um, you know, argument uh, appealing to evidence of some sort for those beliefs. And now, of course, Cunningham has to say something about what the cognitive mechanisms in question might be. And what he has to say about that is roughly that uh, God has designed us human beings with not only sensory and cognitive mechanisms that allow us to gain the usual sort of perceptual and empirical knowledge of our world, but also with two very special capacities which uh, are designed so as to allow us to acquire true religious beliefs, specifically uh, Christian beliefs. And those are a general capacity uh, which Calvin calls the sensus divinitatis, which Calvin alleges that all human beings have and which predisposes them, just naturally predisposes them to uh, believe in God, um, at least when it is functioning properly and it is not overridden by um, things that, that cause it to operate defectively. Uh, and then secondly, there is uh, the operation of what Planninger calls the um, the internal instigation of the Holy Spirit. So God sends a spirit uh, um, to help each of us to acquire these true beliefs. And if we are properly sensitive to the efforts of the Holy Spirit, uh, then again we can acquire these beliefs not by way of evidence, but simply by way of their being planted within us by the Holy Spirit. And then if you add, of course, that the census divinitatis and the Holy Spirit uh, aim at giving us true beliefs, um, you get the desired conclusion that at least when these operate properly in the Christian, uh, they deliver beliefs that are not just true but warranted. Right. And now, why wouldn't this also be saying that Muslims are just as warranted in believing in Allah if that's what they come to believe based on using their cognitive faculties? Okay. So, we're here at what has come to be known as um, the Great Pumpkin Objection, uh, or uh, maybe the son of the Great Pumpkin Objection. Um, uh yeah, the way that the, the way that uh, uh, planning a characterizes this objection is by saying, well, you know, what about uh, Linus, who every Halloween awaits the coming of the great pumpkin in his pumpkin patch? Um, why couldn't it be the case that for Linus, uh, the belief in the great pumpkin is a properly basic belief? And of course. Uh, the the answer to that form of the objection is just, well, look, I planning a am uh, I'm an I'm an externalist when it comes to theory of knowledge. That is to say, uh, according to me, you don't have to know anything about the cognitive mechanisms that are functioning in you that produce warranted belief in order for those mechanisms to generate warranted beliefs for you. If what I say is true, 
about how it is that God generates uh, warranted beliefs in the um, in in the um, unique uh, role of Jesus Christ in saving human beings. Um, if if all that story is true, then those beliefs are, are warranted beliefs. If that story is false, and it's not true that that uh, there is a God and that Jesus is his one and only begotten Son who came to earth to save us from our sins, if all that is false, uh, then, of course, um, it's false that I will have the uh, the census divinitatis and the instigation of the Holy Spirit, and so none of those beliefs will be warranted. Now, Planning himself never explicitly argues that the Christian story, as he calls it, is true. He just argues that if it's true, then Christians have warranted beliefs. Okay? Uh, warranted properly basic beliefs. Uh, I think he would allow that if the Muslims had a similar sort of story to tell, According to which, not only was it true that um, that uh, Muhammad was the uh, the final and um, uh, most important prophet of God, but it was also true that God had instilled human beings with some sort of cognitive faculties, which would allow those of us who are properly receptive to recognize in a properly basic way, that Muhammad is God's preeminent prophet, then the the Muslim beliefs would be properly basic and the Christian beliefs would not be. I think Planninger would agree that that's the case. But, of course, as a Christian, he thinks the Christian story is the true story, not the Islamic story. And so he holds that the Christian beliefs, not the Islamic ones, are properly basic. That seems all kind of pointless to me because it sounds like he's saying that if the Christian story is true, then Christians are warranted in believing that the Christian story is true. That's right, and uh, that's exactly right. And and then they have, in fact, they're not only warranted, but they know, they have knowledge that the Christian story is true. Now, you and I, looking at this scene, might say, yeah, wait a minute now, um, if the God is Allah then uh, Muslims have religious knowledge, and if the God is uh, Yahweh, then the Christians have religious knowledge. But I want to know who's right. Who who has the right uh, view of the matter? And as I said, Planninga is, in a way, not explicitly interested in answering that question. What is true is that not just any old crazy belief will qualify as a properly basic belief, right? Because what you need to do is to have it, uh, you have to have some kind of a story according to which there is some way that human beings have been endowed with cognitive faculties, which when they are operating properly will generate the belief in question. And Linus doesn't have any such story about the great pumpkin. I mean, you could cook one up. But uh, it's not as if he actually has one. So, I mean, planning is right to say that, you know, not just any old belief will count as 
a candidate for a properly basic religious belief. But if you press Flanagan and ask him, well, but how do you know that the Christian story is correct? He explicitly begs off of answering that question. You know, he's certainly prepared to provide you with arguments of a somewhat traditional sort for the existence of God, but when it comes to what he calls the uh, the great truths of the gospel, that is the the doctrines that are specific to Christian salvation as he understands it, uh, he's not going to try to give you an evidential case for them. In fact, he has argued that I think he's had some second thoughts about this, I should say, but he's, he's argued uh, that really it's hopeless to try to give a, uh, a historical, an argument that's grounded in uh, historical evidence for the truth of these uh, various Christian claims. Let's move on to talk about William Alston. What is Alston trying to say in his book, Receiving God? Alston's aim, his, his primary aim, is to try to establish the value of religious experiences, uh, most particularly what we might call mystical religious experiences of a certain kind, as providing evidence for the existence of God and uh, perhaps also evidence for certain other truths about God. Now, the question which arises is this. If someone has a religious experience, if they have an experience uh, in which it appears to them that uh, God or perhaps some other supernatural figure uh, is revealing him or herself, should we take that seriously as evidence uh, that that being exists and that it is indeed uh, revealing itself? And a lot of people have been rather suspicious of such experiences. They don't think that they are experiences that should be relied upon. And in fact, uh, it must be said that within uh, just about any mystical tradition that I know much about, uh, the mystics themselves are quite suspicious and try hard to figure out how to distinguish genuine mystical experiences uh, that reveal the truth from, you know, hallucinations or mental aberrations of one kind or another. Alston's approach is to try to show that mystical experiences are sufficiently analogous to ordinary sense experiences that if you're prepared to trust your ordinary senses, vision and hearing and touch and so on, to tell you things about the, you know, our, our physical environment, you ought to be prepared to extend at least a somewhat similar degree of trust to religious experiences, at least of the right kind. So what are the reasons that you reject the idea that mystical experiences should, uh, should count as solid evidence for mystical existence? One really central argument uh, or dispute that I have with Alston concerns the following sort of difference uh, that we find uh, quite generally between mystical experiences and ordinary sense experiences. In the case of ordinary sense experience, 
the experience itself is, is, is of course, private. It's subjective. I, but you and I are ordinarily perceiving public objects. We can both look out the window and see the tree. Whereas if I happen to be having a vision of the Virgin Mary, it's not as if I can just point to somewhere in the room and ask you to uh, confirm that uh, the Virgin Mary is there. Now, I should say that Alston focuses on mystical experiences that don't have any sensory content. So visions will not count as experiences of the kind he has in mind. But then so much the worse. I mean, so somehow when I experience the presence of God, not in a sensory way through vision or touch or smell or hearing, I can't ordinarily ask anybody else who happens to be in the room to confirm that. Not only is it the case with respect to sense experience that I can ask others to confirm or disconfirm, at least in the the ordinary case, but I can also appeal to several of my own sensory modalities. I can do what I call cross-checking. If I don't trust my vision with respect to whether there's a tree out there, I can go outside and I can try to touch the tree. And if it's a hallucination of some kind, I won't feel anything tree-like in that location. I can uh, try to hit the tree with something and see if it makes a sound. And, of course, there are any number of other ways that I can, as I call it, cross-check. And it's hard to see how that goes in the case of mystical experiences. Another factor that uh, seems to me to be quite relevant uh, and this is something that Alston, I think, didn't take the time to check out before he began writing on the subject, is that uh, there are pretty good scientific explanations now for why people have mystical experiences. The, the, the sorts of explanations that uh, I'm most familiar with and, uh, in fact, most uh, excited by are sociological explanations on the one hand and neurophysiological explanations on the other. The reply that Olson would give to, for example, a uh, neurophysiological explanation that holds that mystical experiences are caused by certain neural discharges in the brain would be to say, well, maybe that's just, you know, the underlying neurophysiology by means of which God communicates with, with the mystic. The trouble there is roughly that although it's possible to claim that, you know, the parts of the brain that are uh, activated in this way are just responding to some sort of signal from God. The problem with that is you don't need to appeal to some sort of signal from God to explain why these brain discharges are happening in the way they do. In other words, there seems to be, as far as we can tell, and to be sure, this is a science which is still in its infancy, so there's a lot we don't know. But as far as we can tell, there are purely naturalistic explanations for why these brain discharges occur when and where and how they do. And in effect, what the uh, theist is doing here is to offer a kind of God of the gaps argument to the effect that, uh, you know, we haven't fleshed out all of the details of the naturalistic explanation. So maybe God is somehow a factor that is um, causing these these mystical experiences. 
What's worse is uh, what happens when you combine this difficulty with what Olson himself recognizes as the most serious problem for his view, which is what he calls the what what, what you might call the, the many contenders objection. That objection is just this: that uh, there are a lot and a lot of religious traditions in which uh, people have mystical experiences, and um, you know, if you happen to to be a um, if you happen to be a Dinka tribesman in the Nile Valley in Africa, uh, you're going to have mystical experiences in which you experience not Yahweh, but uh, a different God with a different name and with different characteristics. Uh, and if you happen to be a Tungus shaman, you're going to experience the gods that the Tungus worship and so on. What is Alston going to say that isn't... Um, special pleading by way of explaining the mystical experiences of the Tungu shaman or the the Dinka master of the fishing spear you know or the uh you know the the sufi who has experiences of Allah or the Hindu or the Buddhist and so on the essential point here is that the scientific explanation of these experiences whether they be Hindu or Buddhist or Tungus or Christian uh, is essentially the same. Whereas the Christian is going to have to say something rather different. Uh, the Christian might say, for example, that in the case of the Tungus, what's going on is just a discharge of the brain that can be naturalistically explained and not explained by appeal to the particular pantheon of gods and goddesses and so on that the uh, you know, other supernatural beings that the Tungu Shaman believes in. Whereas in the case of the Christian, who has a an experience of God or of Jesus, um, it is God or Jesus that is ultimately responsible for the experience. But that really does look like special pleading, and it looks as if the Christian has to make an exception in the case of his or her own experiences but agrees with the scientific explanation in the case of, you know, these other religious traditions. Uh, and that, that certainly doesn't seem to me to be a very plausible maneuver. And I don't see what other maneuver really is available. Alston has a sort of a rather complicated way of trying to handle the many contenders' objection. The first thing he does is to rather carefully try to delineate what he takes to be the relevant Christian community. And this isn't so easy to do. Um, he wants the relevant Christian mystical tradition to apply to what he thinks of as roughly mainstream Orthodox Christianity. Um, but in the process of doing that, what he does is to try to marginalize or sideline a lot of Christian traditions that uh, rely heavily on mystical experience. Uh, so he, he engages in what I call a sort of a gerrymander, uh, just within the, the Christian community itself. So, you know, Pentecostals and Quakers and Mormons all have mystical traditions, but not ones that I think would be included within uh, Alston's conception of the mainstream Christian mystical tradition.
But in any case, what he does is he tries to argue that the criteria that are applied to determining whether a mystical experience is genuine or not will be uh, specific to a given tradition, uh, and they'll be different in different traditions. And if you're in a given tradition, uh, the ones that are relevant are obviously the criteria of your own tradition. And as long as it is a tradition which has certain well-established practices and criteria that are uh, socially accepted by a community over, uh, you know, a sufficient period of time. The mystical experiences that uh, pass the criteria have a certain kind of prima facie uh, believability for you. It has a kind of what I call a principle of credulity that says that, very roughly, that um, if they pass that sort of test, then unless there are particular reasons uh, for skepticism, you are within your rights to believe them. Well, I think there's a lot more that we could say about Alston, but I would like to bring up a scene from a movie that many people will have seen and just ask how you would respond to it. I'm talking about the science fiction movie Contact, which was based on a Carl Sagan novel, and an alien race contacts Earth, and the religious people go nuts. They think it's the end of the world, or the aliens are their saviors, or whatever. And atheist scientist, played by Jodie Foster, has to fight her way through all this and to figure out what's really going on. Anyways, aliens send a, blue, a blueprint to build some kind of wormhole travel device, and the humans build it, and Jodie Foster gets to be the person who rides in the wormhole. So she gets into this castle, and uh, and they drop her into this kind of vortex that's created by this giant machine they built. And she goes on a fantastic journey across the universe and uh, visits the aliens and has, you know, basically a mystical, spiritual experience that nobody else has. And when she comes back to Earth, it appears to everyone on Earth as if the capsule just dropped right through the vortex. And she wasn't gone at all. She just dropped right through the vortex and came out of the capsule. So let's say that Jodie Foster actually experienced that, and she was the only one who experienced it. She had no evidence. I think this is what many believers will say is the reason for their own faith. They have no evidence at all. They can't prove it to anybody else, but they had this personal experience that they know is real. So what would your response to that be? She's in a pickle. Right. Uh, I mean, she, she's in a pickle, uh, even if she doesn't have to convince anybody else, just has to convince herself, uh, because the experience might be profound, but unless she fully understands uh, what was going on, uh, she has to ask herself the question, how do I know that when they dropped me into this vortex, what happened wasn't that I just had a very powerful hallucination of some kind? How do I know that that isn't the, the proper explanation? And for that matter, how do the other people know that that isn't what happened to her? Now, I mean, if they understood the physics of this machine that they built, I can imagine that there might be theoretical reasons to take seriously what happened to Jodie Foster. But if, if they just built this machine on the basis of a blueprint and they have no understanding of how the thing operates, you know, they just somehow stick it together, then I don't see that they've got really any good reason to believe Jodie Foster. But to bring matters more down to earth, uh, when 
people say, I know that Jesus lives and that he's my personal savior because I have a personal relationship with him. I have actually encountered Jesus. I don't particularly question the sincerity of the people that say that, though it's a matter of very considerable interest to me to try to understand just what the, the phenomenology is. I mean, what is it? what was it actually like to have this experience? And I have the, the great good fortune of having some deeply religious friends who have had such experiences and have been willing to try to describe them to me in as much detail as, as they can. But the general issue is very much the issue that I've been debating with uh, with Bill Alston. Is there some way of confirming the accuracy uh, of these experiences? I mean, I think I mean, a lot of religious people are convinced by them because they are psychologically very, very powerful experiences. And they are experiences that can actually... Uh, on some occasions, I guess, uh, transform someone's life. But I don't think that when we sit down in a cool moment and reflect on these things, uh, we ought to be uh, terribly swayed by the vividness or reality that they seem to have to the person who is having them. And after all, I have very powerful dreams sometimes. We're certainly all aware that people can have experiences that are as vivid and convincing as you like, that... uh don't have any correlates in reality. And when it comes to subjective experiences that no one can share directly with other people because they're not experiencing ordinary public objects, then it really is difficult. And and I think the burden of proof is on the person who has the experience to try to convince us that, in fact, it is genuine. I don't really see how they can do that. One thing that I say to such people is, look, I don't doubt the importance to you or the force of the experience that you've had, but you need to understand that the um, practitioner of voodoo, who claims to be possessed by a lower spirit, has experiences that are every bit as vivid as the experiences you have. You know, what do you say to that person? If you say to them, look, you are in the thrall of the devil, you're just being deceived by evil spirits or whatever, then what gives you the right to uh, refuse a similar claim made by the Haitian voodooist with respect to your experiences? And I don't know of a good non-question-begging answer that the Christian can offer. I'd like to end on a positive note. Many people have this impression that atheists live a cold, empty, meaningless existence and our mouth feels like cardboard all the time or something. And that's actually what I thought, too, when I was a Christian, because that's what all my Christian friends told me, that being an atheist was like. I probably should have asked an atheist what it was like. But um, so, but you apparently <laughs> think that there are a lot of riches to atheist life. Uh, what are they? I have written a paper that uh, attempts to offer a serious exploration of this rather vague notion of what makes life meaningful, both so far as I can understand that uh, for Christians and in the various different ways in which it seems to me atheists have importantly struggled with that question. And that particular paper is called Despair, Optimism, and Rebellion. Those are those are what I think are are three kinds of stances, each of them meaningful, highly meaningful in its own way, uh, that have been taken by 
by atheists. But in answer to your uh, question, uh, I mean, the first thing I would want to point out is that, of course, there are any number of things that can make life meaningful to a person. There are any number of things that somebody can really care about and that can engross them and occupy them. Some of these are more fruitful than others. I mean, uh, there's a sports culture in this country where people are obsessed with uh, watching professional sports that I don't think is perhaps the most uh, fruitful thing to dedicate one's life to. But so far as uh, the more profound aspects of our lives go, uh, it seems to me that atheists are as capable as anyone else of reaping the rewards of love, of charity, of, you know, self-fulfillment, and, uh, you know, most of the other things that people see as being important. For some Christians, the prospect of a death which ends it all is a prospect which in and of itself makes life hopelessly devoid of meaning. And, and that that is an attitude that I can understand someone's having, but I don't share it. And I also uh, have to say that I'm not so sure that uh, eternal life, even if it's a life of, of beatitude, and bliss is something that is all that much to be desired when you really think about it hard. Yeah, when I was a Christian, I actually worried that heaven would be me just standing around praising Jesus all the time, and I actually thought that would be quite boring. Well, I mean, I I think one can have a much deeper and richer conception of what, uh, you know, the life in heaven would be like, or what existence in heaven would be like than that, but however you try to picture that, it does seem to me that after a while it would get old, and after a while longer it would get really old. Uh, I'm not sure that that's something that I would really look forward to. Well, Evan, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, it's been my pleasure. And that was my interview with philosopher Evan Fales. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, keep fighting the war on your own biases.